and we're still focused on Hezekiah and the events after that great uh, apex of events. In those days, the days of that victory that the Lord provided, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned, Hezekiah, his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray how I've walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. What an incredible scene and defining moment in just the human experience for this great king. And then we read on a little bit more because it just adds a little bit more to our story in verse 4. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle of the court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, of our father, your father, I've heard your prayer and I've seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up into the house of the Lord and I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. So those last few verses give us a little more background to it, because as Hezekiah is crying out for his life, like I've watched so many people do in 35 years of being a pastor, as I've even done in my own life on more than one occasion when I felt that death was very near and have been delivered thus far in my journey to be here tonight, and as maybe some of you, many of you, can look back on your life and you know for sure there's a time you cried out for your life to be spared and God spared your life. The older you get, the more likely you'll have that kind of an experience, whether it's a random event or an illness or you're waiting for a doctor's report for a few days and you had to wrestle with the thought process like, what if you know this prognosis is correct and I do have cancer or something like that? And so, like so many human beings with 8 billion people on the planet in a universe with trillions of galaxies in time, space, and matter, Hezekiah, when death comes, is in the same place all of us are, where he's grappling with it, thinking about it, and he's begging for his life. And which is not nearly always the case, or even might even be more rarely the case, God grants that request, which is interesting. But it's noteworthy that God grants the request to extend his life 15 years. And how many human beings ever have the Lord tell them, I'm going to give you 15 more years. That's pretty amazing and unique in of itself. It stands alone. In fact, I don't really know of anything similar in the Bible to that story. And in my human experience, I've never quite heard of something quite like that. But then in his case, we see there's a sovereign purpose in it too. Because he has a personal prayer. But God says, I will deliver you for this city from the king of Assyria in future events and whatnot. And he says, and I will defend it for the sake of my servant David. So listen, Hezekiah's answered prayer is just the good fortune that God's sovereignty has a plan for him to live longer because God's going to protect the city through this great king for another 15 years under Hezekiah. And it's not necessarily because Hezekiah was the the great king or he's done something super. God's sovereignty says, I'm going to defend the city because it's my city and I'm going to defend it for the sake of my servant David, which really has nothing to do with Hezekiah, right? Like, David, the servant of the Lord, is 200 years before this. And God says, here, I'm going to spare the city because of, and your life for 15 years, because of David. Still, though, Hezekiah made good decisions in his life, and he was affiliated with David by the Holy Spirit, that he do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, like his father, David, from whom he's a descendant, the 13th king, 
in the line of Judah, coming from David. And so this is our background to the story. And as we come to our topic, it's so hard to ignore this phrase that jumps out right away. In those days, Hezekiah, verse 1, was sick, and particularly these two words, and near death. You know, we talk about a near-death experience, right? Like a near-death experience. Now, sometimes we have near-death experiences that we know we were near death. But sometimes in our youth, we don't realize how close we were to death in a near-death experience. When my brother's house was robbed at gunpoint when I was 18, the guys came in, and a guy pointed a gun in my face and made me get down on the ground and put a gun to the back of my head. Now, at that time in my life, I felt pretty fearless. And in that moment, I never, I never really thought this person was going to shoot me. They're just robbing all the weed my, dad, my brother had in the house. My brother grew weed. He had about $100,000 worth of cannabis in the house in October. And there were criminals, and they came to steal from other criminals because it was all illegal back then. I never really thought the guy was going to shoot me. But you know, when I'm older now and I reflect on that event, I'm like, I should have been really scared. When someone points a gun at your head to your face and tells you to get on the ground, puts it back of your head, that's a near-death experience. Really? You know, like, because they always say if someone pulls out a gun, that's the person that would use a gun. You don't ever pull out a gun for fun. When someone pulls out a gun, that's a serious situation. I didn't realize it was a near-death. So maybe you've had something like that. Or maybe you've been in the car and you just, that little moment where you swerved and you just missed this thing. When my wife and I hit the deer outside of um, Flagstaff about five years ago, just a matter of inches, we would have both been dead. It was a horrible event. Did $6,000 damage to the car. I still have never really recovered from the psyche of the event, and that deer flying over our car. It was horrible. We were so close. And I was so emotionally distraught four days later when I got to Florida and did the insurance report. I was speaking with the lady on the phone from AAA, and I started crying. I broke down emotionally. I actually couldn't even talk. I was in our daughter's Hannah's house, and Jennifer's my witness. I was so emotional over this whole experience. It was, and I felt so bad for the, the deer, everything, the people, and what I saw in the rearview mirror. It was, it was just horrible. And the lady said, listen, I want to tell you something. We get calls all the time where people are killed by hitting a deer or, or an animal on the road. You know, they go through the car windshields. They kill people. You're very lucky you're alive. It was a near-death experience in a car, being stupid in my youth, and of course, quite a few in my surfing experiences, which you've already heard those stories, so I'll spare you them, but near-death experiences. So just pause for a minute and maybe think right now if you can recall in your life a near-death experience or maybe more than one. Because I'm quite certain for all the ones you can remember, probably you can count on your hands, there's ones you don't remember where the Lord just intervened and protected you from something very serious. Maybe... You know, the brown recluse spider that was on your leg. You didn't even know it was a brown recluse. And you flicked it off. And you didn't even know it was a brown recluse. The thing kills you. You know, it can kill you like that. Like, we just don't know. But we do know this. We are always one moment away from death. And with 8 billion people on this planet, one thing we have in common is we're all going to die and step into eternity. And before we get there, we might have near-death experiences. And then we'll have a near-death experience that becomes death. And we do transcend dimensions and we step into eternity. So it's a very serious text right away. It's like he was sick. They just survived the whole thing with Sennacherib. And he's near death. And when he's told, so when you're near death, you might suspect that you're going to die, right? Like, I mean, if you're very sick, you might think, well, this could be a sickness leading to death. And when faced with the reality that we're going to die, 
there's this this phrase. So maybe you think like maybe you think it's this, and maybe you're not sure. But then when the prophet shows up, and you're thinking you hope he's going to say, "Hey, thus says the Lord: You're healed. You're going to live 30 years. It's all good stuff in the future." When you see the prophet Isaiah walk through the front door, you're hoping it's something like that. But you never know what the prophets, because they say what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. They say what the Lord's told them to say. And Isaiah looked at him and said, set your house in order, you shall die and not live. And I'll tell you what, when Isaiah shows up at your house and says you're going to die and not live, that's what it means. You're going to die and not live. Which brings us to another element of near death that really gets my attention here. It says that he turned his face toward the wall. Now, that, that might mean something to you. It might not mean anything to you. But like, when you're a child, you might be disciplined and you'd have to put your you know, in the corner. I was out of control. And I remember, like, more than once, I had to face the wall. Like, just, you know, like, like that. Like, face the wall. Like, slow the mind down. Think about what you're doing. Self-reflection at six, seven, eight years of age. But to face the wall. You know, a wall always looks like a dead end. For me personally, this phrase that he turned and faced the wall, like, like does he, he, can't, he can't look at Isaiah. Like, Isaiah says, you're going to die. And so, like, when you hear that news, like when the doctor says that, maybe there's other people in the room, you don't want to look at your loved ones. You're not even sure you want to look at the doctor. I mean, who knows? I've never said anyone, I've never been in the situation where someone said that to me personally. But maybe even being told you're going to die is such an embarrassing moment because death is the result of sin in the human race. And we feel helpless when we're sick and dying. Maybe you just can't look at anyone and you just turn and you face the wall. That's part of it. But as many of you know, when I was in the room, when Jeremy Camp's first wife, the famous singer, Melissa Henning Camp, went to be home with the Lord, she faced a wall. That wall's not a dead end. But when, you, when you're told you're going to die, it's just a wall. But that wall doesn't stay a wall, because sooner or later, that wall opens up to eternity, and you see eternity, and you're transcending dimensions. So the wall might be time, space, and matter. It's matter but that wall will give way, kind of like the Chronicles of Narnia movies. In the Chronicles of Narnia, whether it's the old BBC ones or the newer ones from 10 years ago, they're minding their own business, Lucy and Peter and them, and then, and then suddenly the next dimension opens up, and they're on the train, and now they're in Narnia. It just, it's like a wall that opens up to another dimension. It's what it's like. And when Melissa Henningkamp went to be with the Lord, and I was in that room, I'll always remember how it played out. Because I've been up all night with Jeremy, and she was dying. Her vital organs were shutting down. And it was very emotional. It was a long night. We're all exhausted. There's about 20 Bible college students in the lobby of the hospital. It was down in San Diego. And everyone loved Jeremy. He'd been a Bible college student the year before. And um, I went to get lunch at about noon. So we've been up all night, and then this is the day she's going to pass. And I went to go get lunch near the hospital about noon. And I, I was eating lunch, and I thought, I'm going to go back in that room. I'm allowed to be in the room, and I'm about to watch someone who loves Jesus. I, I knew Melissa Anning quite well. I'd pray for her healing. I'd, I'd been in places where no one else could go except Jeremy and a few people that were in that inner circle with his wife. I'd been at her wedding day. I'd be at her funeral just a few weeks later with my wife, Jennifer. But I, I thought, you know, she's going to step into eternity, and I'm going to be there. And I was actually kind of excited about it, because I knew she was going to glory. So I was sitting here, and the wall was to my left. 
Melissa was there. Her mom was singing, When I Get to Heaven, I'm Going to Walk with Jesus. She was doing the hand, hand signs like you do in children's ministry. And her eyes were closed. She's about 80 pounds. And her vital organs were shutting down. She's hooked up to all this stuff. And when her mom was singing, I'm going to get to heaven, I'm going to walk with Jesus, her eyes opened up. And she looked right to my left at the wall. This wall, my left. And she started to go like this to get all the cords off of her. And so the nurse comes running in. Jeremy wasn't in the room. Jeremy came running. He's like, what's going on? What's going on? I was like, I was like, oh, oh. You know, I, like, I was in the moment. So her mom is Jeremy and a, and a nurse. And it was it was incredible moment. Then she, they, they calm her down, and her eyes are open, and she's looking at over my left shoulder for the next five to ten minutes. And now Jeremy's singing, and they're singing to her. And I'm telling you, she jumped out of that bed. She jumped out of her deathbed. She jumped out of that bed and hopped right out of the bed to my left. And the whole time, looking at the left wall, stage left. And she jumped out of that bed, and she was moving. She, I, was like, I was like, Jesus is here. Like, it's kind of like when Jesus struck down Saul on the road to Damascus. He saw it, he heard it, but the others didn't. Like, this is holy ground. This is a holy moment. Jesus is in this room right now. That's what I was thinking. And he's coming for her, and he's right over my left shoulder. I can't see him because it's not my day, but it's her day. And she's transcending dimensions right now. And she hopped out of that bed, stood right next to Jeremy, and he said, what's going on? He goes, and she said, I am healed. And then she collapsed. And that was it. She went to be with the Lord. Right there. Right in front of me. Like right here. We're going to do a dedication when the service is done. For Mark Coke. Like I was that close. I'm telling you, it was it. My faith grew, and it was the wall. See, for us, it's just a wall. But for her, the king had come, and the king came where that wall was. He opened it up like Narnia. There it is. Jesus came for her, the good shepherd. She was near death, and she passed dimensions right in front of my eyes, jumped out of a coma, out of a deathbed, and told her husband, the husband of her youth, she had married five months before I was at the wedding, she said, I am healed. It's the last thing she said in time, space, and matter. And I heard it, and I was there. Now, he looked at the wall. He's near death. Maybe he thinks he might be near death, but it's not going well. And then the prophet shows up and tells him, in fact, you are near death. Set your house in order. You're going to die. And he faces the wall. And let me say tonight, over this entire message, someday, every one of us in this room will face the wall of death, where we must stare down death. And I intend to, and I know you intend to, and it's a serious message, but isn't life serious, and isn't eternity more serious? I intend to stare at that wall with all the faith and all the hope I've ever had in Jesus Christ. And I know he's coming for me. And I know he's coming for you because he's the good shepherd. And he's coming for a sheep that he loves. And he lays down his life for the sheep. And he's coming. And yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, he's, that wall that is time, space, and matter and just three-dimensional will become multi-dimensional when the king comes for you and me, the sons and daughters of the king in our faith. And whether we have faith or not, he's coming. That wall opens up for everybody. Or as Voltaire, the great antichrist, said of his life, I now must face him whom I've denied my entire life. The, the, wall, the wall's there, and it opens up. 
So with that in mind, let's think about three things in this text that we see coming forth from this amazing story. The first thing is the temporal element of dying, because that's what we're talking about tonight. The Lord said to him, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. So this phrase, set your house in order, when I taught this Tuesday, I really focused on the spiritual, about just that you're right with the Lord, and we'll get to that in a moment. But really, in the context of set your house in order, it it deals with really like the practical things. In fact, it's temporal. It's about others. It's physical. It's this dimension, and it's that which is left behind. So when we talk about setting your house in order, it's, it's temporal, it's physical, it's time, space, and matter, it's the things that are left behind, and it's focusing on others. So the first point tonight is focusing on others. I'm going on a trip next week. I'm going to Florida next week after service. I'm going back to see the grandkids between books and just going to go see the family and my kids as well and looking forward to it. When I go on a trip, maybe the same way, when I go on a trip, I like everything in order before I go on a trip. How many of you can relate to this? Raise your hand. Like, you go on a trip, do you put everything in order? Like, you know, you make sure all the bills are in order, your desk is in order, there's not a messy desk. It's like, I don't like any dirty, I don't want clean laundry unfolded or not put away. When I go on a trip, I mean, it is like this. Everything is in order. As if I'm never coming back. When Jennifer and I were traveling together a couple times in Florida, we had to look out for our dogs, Fitz and Lucy. Sam and Joanna came and took care of the dogs. Jake and Lee helped out with the dogs. Our son Timmy helped out. We had a schedule of who would take care of the dogs for two and a half weeks, right, Sam? We had a schedule. Hey, Fitz and Lucy, they get fed at this time. These are their treats. This is the deal. They like this about this much turkey burger. They'll never complain if you give them too much. You know, like that kind of a thing. So this is the dogs. This is the way it works. And we're, we're setting things in order. I used to always tell Jennifer, if I was going on a trip, listen, I'll be back in, you know, it's 10 days, two weeks, whatever, the Chilean surf team, U.S. surf team, like, hey, this is this, the bills are all paid, everything's good, everything's in order, and, you know, and this and that. I, I would, you don't leave un, unpaid bills behind when you're leave, going on a trip. You don't let them go into default or be late. You, you don't do that. You don't leave dirty, you don't leave unfinished laundry, you don't leave them in the washing machine and not put in the dryer and dry it and fold it and put away. You don't do that. You set those things in order. That's what you do when you're going on a trip. You call and say, hey, activate the credit card. We're going to be in Florida for 10 days, so when you see activity, you set things in order. You put things in motion for where you're going, and you have things in motion for what's going to, what you're leaving behind. Well, going to eternity is like that. I don't so much, when I go on a trip, like I'm going next week by myself, I'm not setting things in order necessarily for when I come back. I'm setting things in order for who I'm leaving behind, my wife and the house. Or when Jennifer and I were traveling, the dogs. Sam's going to be there at 5, Leah's going to be there at 10 in the morning, and it's set in order. It's for what's left behind. It's not for me on the trip. It's for who's left behind. And that's the idea. Ahithophel, who had great counsel, David's great counselor, he turned against the Lord and against David, but when he realized his counsel was defeated, it says he went home, and what did he do before he took his life? He set his house in order. That same phrase was used. In it, and it was a negative context, of course. But he was, he was a smart guy, and he stepped into eternity. So before he took his life, he put everything in order for the wife, the kids, the estate, and all that kind of stuff. So when we think about this first thing, it really is more practical and physical and temporal and for others than any other element of this story. 
And it's a reality that people are left behind. When I travel, when you travel, people are left behind and things need to be done. And eventually you'll travel and never come back. It's a one-way flight to eternity and no one comes back. Back in the 70s, you older people remember we'd go to the airport and there at San Diego Airport, you go right to the gate with your loved ones. They're boarding the flight and you're like, you're in the gate with them. You're right there. You, you don't do that anymore. Right now you're going through security like TSA. You're like, see you guys. You're going up at LAX. But back in the day, you go right to the gate and you'd be like, you know, all you need is a song. I'm leaving on a jet plane with Peter, Paul, and Mary, and you just close the deal, right? My bags are packed and ready to go. And she's like, there it is. You want to cry. You're saying goodbye. You're never coming back. That's a one-way flight. And before you turn around and say goodbye to the people you love, you want to set things in order. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. I'm not going to dwell on this too long, but just remember this. There are people that you're leaving behind. So when you're leaving people behind and you're setting things in order, first, the one thing you're going to always pass on to your loved ones is the legacy of your faith. It says in Psalm 145, verse 4, that one generation shall proclaim your praises to the next generation. And we understand from the law of God in the Old Testament with Israel to the teachings of the New Testament to honor your father and mother to tramp a child in the way it should go, that there's the generational legacy of faith. So when we step into eternity and we leave loved ones behind, we want to make sure that we've left them with a sure foundation of faith in the person and the work and the promises of Jesus Christ and the assurance of his word for their life. As he has been faithful in my life and my wife's life for almost 35 years of marriage, so too we know he'll be faithful in our children's lives and our children's children's lives and so on and so forth. So of course the number one thing we set in order is that our faith spiritually has been passed on But again, the context really is practical. So I think more of what Solomon would say, who's so practical. In Proverbs 13, he says, a righteous man is an inheritance to his children's children. So two generations, there's a blessing. It is interesting, the nation of Israel, everything anyone ever had, like Naboth and his vineyard that we saw Ahab steal from him, was something they received from the Lord. The amazing thing about Israel and the promised land is no one... Like the land each family had, like Naboth's vineyard, they received as an inheritance from the Lord. When Joshua went into the land, then they conquered the land and they cast lots, and the Lord determined which tribe, Naphtali, Zebulun, up here, Judah down there, Simeon over there, Gad up there. And in those households of all those people, in the census, they, res- they, they didn't get a job and go buy their land like we do. Every piece of real estate in Israel in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel was received inheritance. And then it was passed on as an inheritance. And so with Naboth's vineyard, when Ahab says, I want your vineyard, Naboth's like, it's not, it's not your vineyard. God gave it to my parents. And God gave it to me. I've taken good care of this vineyard. You just can't take it because you're the king. And Ahab was like, well, yes, I can. And Jezebel's like, yes, he can. So they kill Naboth and they take his vineyard. But in the end, they... Ahab and Jezebel both are struck down by the Lord for what they did with Naboth's vineyard. Of all the evil they did, it was stealing the wealth of Naboth's vineyard that belonged to him and belonged to his children and his children's children. That's important in understanding the Old Testament. So when we think about setting your house in order, we realize there is a practicality. In 34 years of ministry, almost 35 So often I've been pulled into situations where people stepped into eternity and the people they left behind were left with a lot of junk, a lot of clutter, and a lot of confusion over what to do. And when your loved ones moved on, it's it's grievous. And there's so much grief when it is in order and it's overwhelming when there's not order. It's very hard 
to see people who profess faith and confess faith in the Lord, who had some wealth but didn't manage it, didn't clarify it, didn't communicate it, step into eternity and leave a disaster for their loved ones behind that no one can straighten out except lawyers who end up taking it all. And you know, this, this topic's dear to my heart because I've seen this so much. And even in recent years, there are so many people I've prayed with in this church whose parents moved on and didn't take the most basic steps necessary to, to define what they want to do when they step into eternity. Casket, burial, cremation. The price difference is about $20,000 at least. My kids know I want to be cremated and scattered in the Pacific Ocean. I don't want my kids to spend $20,000 to put me in a casket in the ground when they can do it for 1000 bucks in the sea. And there's just no confusion about it. You say, well, gosh, it's so morbid. No, it's a reality. They're, they're Z-generation millennials. They want to own homes in Southern California. They don't even spend $19,000 to put my bones in the ground. You can scatter me at sea. The Lord will raise me up in the great resurrection in the last day. As he will with all the saints of old, where they're all over, scattered all over. Their, their matters all over planet Earth. And when he does it, he's going to do it. That's why he's the Lord. He's running the universe. That's why we're just us, worshiping the king. It's really important if you have any wealth whatsoever that you clarify what it is, whose it is, who's in charge of it when you leave. You need, you know, with a trust and a will and things like that, you need, you need successor trustees. You need someone who's in charge because you don't want three adult kids fighting over who's in charge. And you need to know who's getting it and what increments they're getting it. So you set that stuff in order. That's what you need to do. It's very important that these things are in play. About two years ago, my wife and I both have life insurance policies, and we realized when driving across country together that we haven't actually clarified what happens if we both pass at the same time. And so we wrote a temporary note and put it with our legal stuff for Luke, who's in charge of things when we were traveling. Hey, Luke, if we both get it, and we almost got it from the deer. If we both get it and we're both called home, this document we've signed, we're all here, there's witnesses, this clarifies what we're doing with the life insurance policy. Then we came back and we called AAA and say, look, we want successive beneficiaries to our life insurance policy. And we did that. And those policies are in place for another nine years. If Jennifer and I both go at the same time, then that $1.5 million is equally distributed to our four kids, which means they can own a home in Orange County. Right? See, these things like... you see. You don't realize how important these things are until you're ministering in the wake of it to the people who are left behind. So I would just say this, and if you leave death behind, that's the worst because people are already grieving and sad you've left. They're going through all that emotion. Now you've left them behind, and you've left them your debt. That's that's just, man, people talk about loving the Lord, going to church, serving the Lord, living by faith, and they step into eternity and leave debt for their kids. That just, I'm quite certain that doesn't look good before the throne of God. That just, because it, it just, it's not consistent. Because Christ is a giver. God's a giver, not a taker. So if you step in eternity and, you, and it's all chaos and disorder, and, and some, you know, no, I thank, my, I thank God for my mom that would sit me down and say, look, do this, cremation, death certificate, San Diego. Here's the, the burial plot in St. Anne's Cemetery in Cleveland. It'll do this. Here's the bank, here's, here's the bank account numbers. See, if you're just a selfish person, you don't have anyone that loves you, you're probably not here, but if that's you, you don't even care, and it just gets absorbed. We are about eternity. We are about Jesus. We are about salvation. We are about the kingdom. But listen, this is a great fact. 
when you step into eternity, someone has to put you in the ground. And someone has to get your death certificate. And someone has to pack your boxes and your desk and go through your clothes that smell like you. And you have to do all that. Someone has to take care of your animal when you're gone. Don't you want someone who loves your dog to take care of your dog when you're gone? Or do you want someone who doesn't care to take them to the Humane Society to be euthanized in two weeks? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, this is important stuff. Because when we step in eternity, people we love, we leave behind. And the cross is about others. So however the Lord would cause you to think about this text, think about others and the people you love and what your personal lifestyle, your finances look like when you step into eternity and have it in order. So when you step into eternity, it's a blessing to people who are grieving that love you when you're gone. Bring a blessing on their life. And I share this last thing on this. When my mom stepped into eternity, I had all the account numbers for her accounts. And never once went into her accounts. I never needed to when she was alive. When she stepped into eternity, we went into her accounts, and she had a hidden savings account with about 15000 in it. And she knew, my mom being my mom, exactly how much it cost to do everything for burying her. And I'm telling you that 15 grand was almost exactly what we needed for the three flights to go to Cleveland, the brothers and the sister to bury her, the everything. The, the facility for the memorial in California, everything. The meal with the 20 people after the memorial, like it literally was the exact amount of money we needed to do everything. Someone had to pay for that. And my mom had the foresight to set it up, so we didn't. And it, it, you know, it's hard enough going through TSA with your mom's remains. But at least it was easier because it wasn't costing us money to do it. I broke down sobbing at TSA when I had to go through LAX with my mom's remains. And I'm glad I had an empathetic TSA guy that comforted me. It's so hard under the best of circumstances and it's overwhelming under the worst for the people left behind. So to whatever degree this application is for you, as much as it's ministering to you by the Holy Spirit right now, I exhort you and encourage you in Jesus' name, make sure you set your house in order. Temporal, practical, others left behind. Now, the second thing is eternal, which, is, which of course, is um, Hezekiah. You know, when you're told you're going to die, I find it interesting he's told he's going to die. He's facing the wall, and what's he do? He busts out his spiritual resume. <laughs> Look, you see, it's three bullet points. This is now the Holy Spirit gave him a better one. Like when he's introduced to us a couple chapters ago, the Lord gives like eight things that are incredible about his life. But just in case, you know, who knows what Hezekiah's thing is like, he's going to remind the Lord right now. He's reminding the Lord about his life. Look what he says. He's facing the wall. He's, He's facing the wall and talking to the Lord. And he says, Remember now, O Lord, I pray. One, how I've walked before you in truth. Hezekiah was a man of truth. His worldview was a Christ worldview, a biblical worldview. And he says, Lord, I'm going to eternity, and I have walked before you in truth. I have not walked in falsehood. I've fulfilled Psalm 1. I delighted myself in the law of the Lord. I did not walk in the path of the evil and sit in the seat of the scornful. Lord, you know, I've walked before you in truth. And with a loyal heart. So James warns about, in the New Testament about having a divided heart, and he says, I walked before you with a loyal heart. Isn't that awesome? Lord, you know my heart. God searches the deep things of the heart. 
God would say previously that he had that he was like his father David and the thing that made David great was he had a heart for the Lord and so here he says with a loyal heart it wasn't yes and no with Hezekiah because it's not that way with the Lord it's yes and amen in Jesus name and Hezekiah as the king and the leader of God's people was yes and amen with all the promises of God a loyal heart and I've done what was good in your sight when you look at his life and this isn't how he's saved he's saved by faith like everyone has always been since Genesis chapter 3 but he, a saving faith produces a fruitful faith. So faith without works is dead. As the body's dead without the spirit, so too is faith without works. It's the works that faith produces. We're working because we're saved, and it produces because we're his workmanship. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith and grace. But because we're saved by faith and grace, we're his workmanship. Ephesians 2.10, we're poema, his, poema, his work of art, like a Rembrandt or a Picasso, but still, we're a work of art, Right? So that's how it works. So he's like, you know, so I walk before you in truth with a loyal heart and I've done what's good. See, let me say something. I said this Tuesday night. When you know, when the prophet Isaiah shows up at your house and says you're going to die, you want to be able to say this. Because you can't change your resume when death is near. Your resume is what it is. The best you can do is be the thief on the cross and say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom today, which is still better than not at all, of course. But you can't go back and redo your life. All the effects of the, the decisions you've made and their compound element of a life of good decisions building on each other and just a super fruitful life, which we'll see with Josiah next week. Or the compound effect of bad decisions like Ahab or Ahaz and these bad kings were one bad decision after another and they just compound and become exponential on your life and it's just you don't get two chances. Isn't it amazing to think we only live once? You might think that much about it when you're 25, but when you're 65, you think a lot more about that. Because there's no redo. All you can do is hope to find the best gear possible on the back end. See, when he says his resume before the Lord, this is eternal. This is spiritual. This is self. This is you and me looking in the mirror as we look at the wall. Because when we step into eternity, no one's going with us in that sense. We stand before the Lord alone. So we set our house in order for those we're leaving behind, and we try and equip them in their faith. We try and equip them for life skills and to pronounce and bring a blessing upon them when we step into eternity and make our passing practically more easy for them than it might have otherwise been if we were just not on our game and not thinking and just ignorant. But you're not ignorant tonight after that. But then it comes back to us. Because you can be surrounded by loved ones on your deathbed, but you're the one leaving, not them. And so we have this one-on-one with the Lord that we have to work through going into eternity. All of us. And it's so sobering. It's so sobering when, when you know you're near death. And you really know it. You're just like Job. Naked I came from the womb. Naked I return. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's you and the God of the universe of a trillion galaxies who made all things for Christ and are held together in Christ and who sent Christ to die on the cross for us and has sent the Holy Spirit through Christ that we can live the victorious Christian life as a disciple of Christ. It's us and him. It's what it is on the day of the Lord. Uh, with Melissa and in camp, stepping into eternity, we were all in that room, but it was her and the Lord coming right out of her coma, right into eternity, into glory. See, 
On the last day, for when we live a triumphant life, like Stephen in the book of Acts, when he saw the Lord coming for him, it's our destiny, it's our glory, it's our home, it's our citizenship, and it's the payoff to be with the Lord. That's really what it should be. When we can say, when we're setting eternity, Jesus coming for us, Lord, remember, remember, and you, and you can actually say how I, I walked in truth. My heart was set for you, and I tried to do good. All those things where you let go, where you forgave, and you didn't hold malice, and you let it slide, and you, you gave this time, you gave this energy, you gave these resources, all of it, and it's like, well, it all gets left behind. So it's the heart, it's, it's, it's you, it's you and me on the day of the Lord, and it's eternity. And everything that we live for, we are now reaping. There's no going back. Each day, because it says in Psalm 139 that the days were fashioned for us when as yet there was none of them. So we're definitely determined amount of days. And then Psalm 90 says that the days of man are 70 years or by measure of strength 80. That's the sum of Moses. So 70, 80 years. You can count them out. You know, like I did the numbers. If you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 days earlier, there's, you know, thousands of days, tens of thousands of days. As you get older up in your 60s, you know, you're more like you got a few more. And it's like an hourglass, and they're just, we can see what's behind us at 61. We can't see what's above us, but the days are fashioned for us when as yet there was none of them. And then there's a day when the day is done, and it's complete. Our resume will speak for itself. What we sowed, we will reap. That's what will be for all eternity. What we sowed in time is what we will reap for eternity. If to the measure we put in for the kingdom is the measure we'll get back. If we took two minus and made four, that's what we get in eternity. If we got five and we made ten, that's what we get in eternity. If we got one and we buried it, it doesn't even look good for eternity. You know those parables. To her, to him who has, more will be given. And to him who doesn't have, her who doesn't have, even what they have is taken from them. And it really is about sowing and growing in time which prepares us for eternity and glory. So if we're not happy with what we see in the mirror today when eternity comes, then today is the day to turn it around and to make good choices because choices become habits. Choices become our character. Habit becomes our legacy, and then it's eternity. And if we've made bad choices with compound elements, we need to start making good choices with compound elements. And the Lord is always for us when we make those decisions. God is faithful. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And wherever there's been defeat in your life, you can claim victory tonight because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We don't have to settle. We can, we can turn it up. That's why I love Colonel Sanders, Harlan Sanders. I just am so fascinated with this man who, whose, co- whose business person friendship, his business partner, was killed in cold blood right next to him at one point in his life. His son died before he did. The motel business he had in Kentucky burned to the ground. He was on Social Security in his early 60s, couldn't live off of it, had his great chicken recipe, not the one you get at KFC right now, was rejected 312 times with this recipe for a vision of a business model to sell his chicken in his mid-60s. And right about the 315th time, someone believed in it, and the rest is Kentucky Fried Chicken, which he took with his profits to support Billy Graham Evangelistic Association 
and Jerry Falwell's ministry for the rest of his life. So you older people, it's never too late to start cooking your chicken and find your recipe, right? Oh, I just tell people, it's winning time. You know, they say in sports, especially with football, that the vast majority of scoring in a football game goes on in the last two minutes of the first half and the second half because there's a greater urgency. You're sharper. They're more focused. Tom Brady, Mahomes, they all get sharper because every moment is so critical. It's more properly managed than the beginning of the first quarter. I'm like, well, I'm in the two-minute warning. So let's be focused, and let's cook our chicken, and let's get that recipe going. It's never too late to write a really good final chapter to a story that otherwise was rather not good or even mundane. It's always there to make that choice. Then finally is the emotional element. So we have temporal and others and left behind. We have eternal and self and going towards eternity. Remember, O oh Lord. But this last one is interesting because it says Hezekiah wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. And of course, the most bitter weeping always comes with fear of death or the reality of death. But the thing about the weeping that got my attention here is it's emotional, isn't it? Weeping, crying is emotional. It's so emotional that even today when I was working on this study, and I kind of turned it down for a little bit. I was working on the study and just kind of resting. And I'm going over my mind, like I'm letting the Holy Spirit, my mind, the Rubik's Cube, starting to put it all together, just putting the whole study together. And as he's doing it, I'm thinking of my mom, and I start crying. I'm thinking of my dad. When I picked up my dad to go say goodbye to my mom on that last night, I'm thinking of Leah coming down with Timmy to say goodbye to my mom in her last 12 hours of planet Earth in her journey. I just start crying. Death makes you cry. You know, there's times in your life when you've really been hurt by the loss of a loved one, we, the Holy Spirit just touches your heart. And you just, you have no control over it. Anyone like that? Raise your hand. Are you like that? The Lord can just bring something to your mind and you just, you're helpless. That's why sometimes I just cry in this pulpit because he's like, oh, remember your son? Uh, and I'm just helpless. I have no control over that emotion. I just weep. I, I don't want to weep publicly when I weep publicly. Hey, last week I'm talking about Jack McEwen singing for Trinity Jameson, and I start crying because it's such a powerful emotion. Ten years later, I still just, it crushes me. And he wept, and he wept before the Lord. Here's the thing about the emotion of death, though, when death is near, and this is really the kicker. Because in order is for the people left behind. That they're going to they're gonna live on this planet, my grandkids, till 20, 90, maybe the next, you know, next century, right? Okay? And then each generation they go, but I'm going to eternity, so i got to get ready. I'm catching the flight. I'm waving goodbye at San Diego Airport in the 70s. I'm saying goodbye, and I'm not coming back. And we've got in order for them to take care and live their life how it's going to be. And God bless you. You know, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go get them. I'm done. you still got yours in front of you. But... There's a transitory element with this when people are dying because you're sharing the human experience of the most powerful, gripping human experience of eternity and time at the same time. And someone's dying, they're going, and others are staying, they're staying. One is eternal, the other is temporal. One gets all left behind, one has to figure out what is left behind, and in the middle of it is God over our lives in that moment. We're sharing it together. I was... Thinking back to when Christy Estes was, before she stepped into eternity, who we loved so much, Eric's wife now in glory. But the last time I saw her, I was in that room, 
talking to her about surfing, surfing with her future son-in-law, Brady. Kimberly, her daughter, was in the room. Eric was in the room, and I was in the room, and she was in tremendous, and I mean tremendous physical pain. And it was all there. I'm weeping, looking at her, trying not to cry, but she's in so much pain, I've got tears in my eyes. She's got tears from pain. Eric and Kimberly are there, and it's like we're sharing this space in time, space, and matter. She's going, we're staying. I'm going to do the memorial. I'm going to do the wedding in September. This is the human experience in 2022. That's When I was with her, I knew she wasn't going to make it to the wedding day. I knew I'd be dancing at the wedding in San Clemente with Kimberly and Brady and all the people in the Deans. I knew I'd be there, but I knew she wouldn't. And that's such a raw, vulnerable human emotion. It's just ripped open, and there's nothing you can do about it. I just see, I see the whole panoramic, and it's so real and raw. You can't, you can't stop the sting of death. And you definitely don't want to stop the joy of life. You can never let the sting of death rob you of the joy of life. Because Jesus said, I came that you might have life, and that more abundantly. And these things I've spoken to you, that your joy would be full. And that's why I tell people, listen, you should dance at every wedding. Because there'll be plenty of days you'll want to cry. That day will come. So make sure you recognize the chance to dance. If you feel like you're the village idiot out there, just start moving. One step, two step. You know? You know? Just listen. Live the moment. Live the moment. Because this is the human experience. And we can't get from zero to 80. We're going to dedicate Mark Coke up here very soon. Just a few moments. And we're setting him before the Lord with 80 years plus. We got him going to the next century. And he's going to know love. And he's going to know heartache. And he's going to know health. And he's going to know sickness. He's going to know joy. And he's going to know sorrow. Because Ecclesiastes 3 says these things happen to everybody. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time of peace and a time of war. There's a time to embrace. There's a time to refrain from embracing. Has not God appointed them all. And so this this experience that death is near, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. But I know when it's near, I want Jesus Christ over every element of it, over all of it. I want God in the room when we're crying, when we're in pain, when we're laughing while we're in pain. Because so often when people are grieving, they're laughing about stories and they start sobbing and it goes up and down. It is all over the place. And as a pastor, you just try and, you just try and read it and go with it. Sometimes say nothing, sometimes say this. Most of the time, just don't say anything. Because this third thing, when he's weeping bitterly before the Lord, that's the human experience. And this is the thing where it's together. The others, you're leaving them behind. The house in order. You, you're going to eternity. That's you and the Lord. You're going towards heaven. They're still here. They're left behind. And in the middle are you and your loved ones sharing the raw emotion of eternity in time. And it's a time of transition. You're going, they're staying. And it's so raw and vulnerable. Yet it's the place of faith and it's a place where faith triumphs because Jesus is the object of our faith. And I say this all the time. Your greatest moment as a disciple of Jesus Christ is your last breath on planet Earth because everything's moving toward that faith that says, I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and life. And like Martha and Mary, we say, yes, Lord, I believe. And he's going to raise us up. 
He's going to come for you when you're looking at the wall like he did for Melissa Henningkamp. That's what's going to happen. God has reserved that your best moment, your greatest moment of faith in a life of faith is your last. Because you're going to be like, there's no more options except to just look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And he'll finish it when he comes in glory for us to receive us into his presence. Yeah, it's the greatest moment. We're moving toward our greatest moment. And as we're in this transitional period, it's his word that comforts us. The word is living and powerful, sharpening to edge sword. It pierces bone and marrow. See, the words and philosophies of men in world religions cannot do what the word of God does for us in the place where we're near death. Trust me, the words of Buddha, Muhammad, and Moses are all incomplete, or Marx and Lenin, these other guys, they're all incomplete. They can't do what the words of Christ alone do. And isn't that our hope and glory tonight? I'm not trusting in Confucius on the day of eternity when death is near. I'm trusting in Jesus who conquered the grave. Jesus, you rose and conquered the grave. So someday you'll hear that Joey Brand has stepped into eternity. You know, I'm good. And someday I'll hear that you stepped into eternity. And maybe I'll be there with you. Like I was with John in the thumbs up. Or with Christy. And what the Lord told me to share with her when I was left alone in the room with her. We're going to glory. I have finished my race. I've kept the faith. And I've fought the good fight, is what Paul said. It is now laid up for me the crown of righteousness the Lord has prepared for me. But not only me, but to all those who love his appearing. And I do think I speak for most of us. We will love his appearing. So be encouraged, body of Christ. Be encouraged, Church of Jesus Christ, worship generation. Because you will face this day, as I will. And I want all of us to face this day with the greatest joy in our hearts of triumph. And we will face this season. And I don't want us to face it in fear. I want us to face it in faith, with firm convictions, as Paul said, knowing who we believed in and we're persuaded he's able to keep that which you've committed to him until that day.